I think as I hear the lyrics of that song, it's rather haunting. But we do live in a mad world. And this week was another reminder with another shooting of a world that just seems to be out of control. So let me pray for you, whatever you're going through. Pray for our nation as it just continues to have heartbreaking madness all around it. Then we'll see what Jesus had to say about how to navigate that. And how this idea of the Lord of the Flies, (laughs) written 100 plus years ago, is still playing out today in our culture. Father, we thank you for your comfort. We thank you for your strength. When everything seems mad and out of control, you have promises we can can anchor into, that we can lean into, that we can trust in. And Father, I ask that you will give strength and courage and hope to each person here today facing a mad world in whatever way they are as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, we all do face sadness and division and challenges in different ways. And sometimes it happens in our culture. I mean, it's just worn out by our culture. It is a mad, mad world. Other times we're worn out just by the constant bickering. I mean, the book Lord of the Flies is a lot like watching The Bachelor or um, Survivor. Just everybody can't be trusted. Everybody stabbing everybody in the back. I was talking to somebody at our church recently who had this coworker who just finally, the manager had to kind of pull him aside because they were just gossiping all the time. I heard you're up for the promotion, even though you don't have as much experience. Opposite person. I heard you're up for the promotion because uh, you've got more experience. Just causing division and malice. Division wears us out. As a culture, as a family. And there are some things you can do, some things that God offers uh, in the Bible that help us know how to navigate that to find unity in the midst of difficulty. In fact, there's a phrase you may have heard. The phrase is, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Have you heard that before? A house, a family divided against itself cannot stand. A marriage divided against itself. And aren't kids great at getting mom's side and dad's side and getting like triangling between the two? Aren't employees often good at trying to get two sides and triangulate? Aren't family reunions all about trying to get people on whose side? Isn't a divorce a difficult time of, oh, this is awkward and you know, I want to be friends with both, but they were his friends and her friends, Right? So that phrase, a house divided against itself cannot stand, you may recognize from Abraham Lincoln. It's words he used to bring our country back together after the Civil War. What you may not know is he got those words from Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus actually uses that phrase, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he uses that phrase when he gets called the Lord of the Flies by the leaders of the day. There was a group of very sophisticated, very powerful leaders in his day called the Pharisees. And they called Jesus the Lord of the flies, questioning his motives, questioning his helping of other people. And Jesus uses this phrase to address their fear and their ego. He said, this principle plays out anywhere. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I want to show you today, as we look at the book, from novel ideas of Lord of the, of the Flies, how Jesus is able to take this concept and address two house dividers that affect all of us, fear and ego, and give us very specific tools on how to navigate those waters to bring unity where there's currently diversity. And I hope these tools will help you in your journey as we begin to navigate uh, the Lord of the Fly moments in our own lives as well. 
So what's a couple reasons that we should deal with disunity and maybe dig into some of these tools? Well, the first reason is that we can overcome fear with truth in whatever arena it shows up. And often people's behaviors are driven by fear going on behind the scenes. And that is certainly true in the Lord of the Flies. Let me give you a quick reading. Now, quick reminder here, uh, the kids have dropped off, things are not going well, there's chaos and there needs to be some civilization. So Ralph uses that conch shell to call people to account. And that conch shell becomes the symbol of civilization. Kids are scared, a lot of unknown, a lot of difficulty, paradise is lost, no parents. And this conch shell is a gathering of the people together to start talking about how we're going to handle fear and how we're going to put some truths in place in the middle of it. However, in the middle of this kind of whoever has a conch shell can ask questions, one little boy voices his concern about a fear. Here's what happens. Tell us about the snake thing. Now he says it was a beastie. A, a beastie? A snake thing ever so big he saw it. So one of the themes of the book is that there is this snake thing, this fear in the background. No one's ever seen it. He says he has, but no one, it was in this little boy, kid's imagination. But that fear begins to drive everything they do. It begins everything how they react. And in this book, it's very clear that the writer has the Bible in mind throughout the book. What do I mean by that? Well, a couple things. One, it's about a, a, a group of innocent kids that are dropped into paradise. And that's how the Bible begins. Adam and Eve dropped into paradise, a perfect environment. In this case, it's an island. Then immediately, we even see a couple of kids bathing naked because Adam and Eve were made naked and were unafraid. So it's just this beautiful scene of innocence until fear comes in, disruption comes in, uh, blackness comes in. In the Bible, it comes in the form of a beast, a snake, someone questioning or destroying the paradise. The same thing happens in the opening chapters here. Fear of the beastie, fear of the unknown, someone distorting what's true, trying to take away the joy, comes in the form of a snake. As the book continues, there'll be several other parallels, including Simon, a bit of a Christ figure. He's innocent, he does the right thing, he's re relatively rejected, and this battle between the pig, the Lord of the Flies, we'll talk about in a moment, versus all the kids trying to figure out how to deal with their fear. Now, Jesus deals with this very straight on, addressing that kind of idea that paradise is lost, we're living in a mad, mad world of chaos. Jesus, when he's called the Lord of the Flies, when he's called the beast or the snake, he gives very practical tools on how to overcome fear with truth. Let's look at a, a couple of those. The first tool Jesus says is that Jesus knew their Lord of the fly thoughts. He recognized that was driving their bad behavior were these I've gotta be in control fears. And Jesus was getting increasingly popular. And these Pharisees were calling him names and having bad behaviors, gossiping about him, challenging him because they were really scared of losing their authority. Here's what happens. Now when the Pharisees, these religious leaders, heard it, the popularity and the fact that he just healed a guy. They said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. So he'd healed a guy who had some kind of spiritual um, sickness. 
And they said, you know what he did? He did this by the power of Beelzebub. Maybe you've heard it's another name for Satan or another name for the devil. And you may not believe in the devil. You might say, this is crazy. I'm feeling a little awkward here. That sounds strange. Beelzebub. Well, think about God, right? God, if you believe in God, is the personification of goodness. All right? So I do believe it's a literal devil. But even if you don't, just think of it as the personification of evil. Either way, the specific term they used here, Beelzebub, is actually the phrase that means Lord of the Flies. So what are they saying? They're saying Jesus might heal people or help people. He's getting popular. He's doing great things. But he's really all about himself and he's coming from the source of evil. He's the Lord of the Flies. To which Jesus says, so I'm the Lord of the Flies, the source of evil. And I use the source of evil to save somebody from the source of evil by healing them and delivering them. Does that make any sense? Right? It says, they called him Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, the ruler of darkness. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what was really motivating them. Their fear of losing control, their fear of not being important, their fear of not being recognized, their fear of not being the, the name in town, the Pharisees, is what caused them to do these things. So sometimes when you see bad behavior in other people, it's really down to that. You have to kind of recognize what's the Lord of the Flies thought going on here? What's the fears in somebody that are driving this bad behavior? The second thing he does is he exposes that fear with questions. Jesus is a master at using questions. He says, guys, every city or house that's divided against itself will not stand. There's that quote from Abraham Lincoln. If Satan, if the source of evil casts out Satan, the source of evil, He'd be a divide against himself. That didn't make any sense at all. How then will his kingdom stand? How does any kingdom stand if it's got dual priorities? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Guys, I'm doing good things. And supposedly you say you're doing good things. I'm taking on the evil of fear and, and darkness and sickness. You've got some of your people who are taking on fear and darkness. So if you're accusing me when I heal somebody or help somebody of being the source of evil, um, does that mean that your sons or your prophets or your mentorees are the source of evil? No, doesn't make any sense. She doesn't get defensive, doesn't get all upset because he recognizes using questions, does this make any sense? The behavior you're acting, the things you've accused me of. Jesus uses a rabbinic technique of questions, what Socrates called the Socratic method, using questions to dig down and address the fear behind people's behavior. In fact, the, the word fear is an acronym. Maybe you've heard it before. It's false expectations appearing real. And so to a person driven by insecurity or driven by fear, fear of not being important, fear of uh, you know, not being recognized, fear of losing their job, whatever it is, it's almost always the fear driving it. And that's not to say there aren't legitimate fears. But more times than not, fear represents false expectations appearing real. And so part of what we do as a parent, as a manager, as a friend, is instead of kind of focusing on the bad behavior, which is hard not to see, we try and drill down with questions. What's going on? Why is this a big deal? How can I help? We use questions to overcome those false expectations with truth. I was talking to a buddy of mine recently, and we were on a ski trip together, and he said that he had an uh, employee, a really good employee, but had kind of a track record historically of working at places for like two years, two years, two years. 
And yet what he realizes as he's been working with this person, there's a lot of dysfunctional and unhealthy behavior that comes out. Like every time there's a call, this person's got to chime in on every single issue. And you can just see everybody on the Zoom call, everybody on the, in the meeting are like, oh, here we go again. This person has to be an expert on everything, has to give an antidote about everything, names drops constantly about stuff. And it's easy to see the bad behavior. And they said, as I've been trying to figure out how to manage them, I've used some questions, what's going on? What do, you, what do you feel like you need to say in the meeting? What do you feel like, why is it so important to tell that story? Because I began to recognize that what I had was somebody who was fearful. They had to brag so much because they were fearful that they weren't important. They had to kind of show their resume around everybody, right? Because they didn't feel that important. And by a combination of, of management, trying to address some truths nicely, trying to put some parameters on how long people could speak. But really, just like Jesus did, Jesus was trying to see the needs of the Pharisees. Well, they, they got some fear that needs to be dealt with. They got some pride that needs to be dealt with. He was trying to actually see how he could manage or help or lead because he saw this person who I need on the team, who I like on the team, is actually creating a, a dialogue or a, an avenue within my team that's making it hard for us to, to move forward. Why? Well, pretty simple. The needs of the one person to deal with their own insecurity and fear and braggadociousness was overcoming the overall mission of the team of getting something accomplished. In fact, that's why what Jesus says next is so important. I mean, what he said here is, that addresses this is that you need to get everybody focused on every kingdom, every city, every house. If we're on mission to something, all of our preferences subordinate themselves to the mission. In fact, the word submission has gotten a bad rap, but it's actually a, a very healthy thing. In marriage, instead of it's your preferences and my preferences, it's our main goal here is the mission of let's learn how to have a great marriage. I'm gonna have to submit myself to that mission. You're gonna have to submit yourself to that mission because every marriage that's got a common mission, let's be about that, not our preferences. His company, it's not about each person needing to tell their story and be important. It's we're all about trying to accomplish X. That's why mission statements can be more than just something written on the wall, can be something happening down the hall. And we use that mission. Guys, a house divided against itself. Let's agree to how we're going to operate. Let's agree to how we're going to participate. Let's agree to how we can move forward here. But Jesus uses questions to expose those fears. But he does the third thing. He binds the source of fear to find success. Often until you have that conversation, you pull someone aside and deal with the fear, you're not going to deal with the dysfunction happening around you. So they've called him Lord of the Flies, and look what he says. Another question. How can somebody enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So the strong man is the source of the dysfunction, the source of evil, the source of the fear. You gotta first deal with the source before you just kind of manage the symptoms. And then, then after you've dealt with the source of the problem, the fear of the strong man, then you can plunder or take the things you need or move the organization forward. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So here the idea of Jesus saying, we've got to deal with the source of the problem and overcome fear with truth so we can move forward as a team, as a house, not divide against itself with different priorities, but unified with one common goal. Well, the second issue is ego, and we overcome ego with a common cause. Now, in Lord of the Flies, there's this constant ego of who's going to be in charge and who's important. 
It happens at the beginning. It causes problems throughout the book. The problem of ego. Seems to me that we ought to have a chief to decide things. Chief, 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 chief. I ought to be the chief, said Jack, with a simple arrogance, because I'm chapter chorister and head boy, and I can sing C sharp. Another bzzz. Well then, said Jack, I... He hesitated. Roger stirred up at last and spoke and said, let's have a vote. Yes. Vote for chief? Let's vote. This toy of voting was almost as pleasing as the conch shell. Suddenly, Ralph counted. <gasps> Turns out they didn't vote for Jack. They voted for Ralph. I'm chief then. The circle of boys broke into applause. Even the, qu the choir applauded. And the freckles on Jack's face disappeared under a blush of mortification. He started up and changed his mind and sat down again while the air rang. Ralph looked at him, eager to offer some kind of recourse. The choir still belongs to you, of course. Now, as the theme continues, this tension builds because Jack is now in charge of the choir boys who become the hunters and they find a pig. And when they kill this pig for something to eat, they take the pig head off and they decide they're gonna kind of dance around that, worship that, talk to that, and it ends up representing the beast, the voice of that snake out in the wilderness. And it begins to take over the source of ego, the source of evil. Jack spoke in a whisper, pick up the pig. And Maurice and Robert skewered the carcass, lifted the dead weight and stood ready. In the silence and standing over the dry blood, they looked suddenly furtive. Jack spoke loudly, this head is for the beast. It's a gift. The silence accepted the gift and awed them. The head remained there, dim-eyed, grinning faintly, blood blackened between the teeth. All at once, they were running away as fast as they could through the forest toward the open beach. Simon stayed where he was, concealed by the leaves. Even if he shut his eyes, the, sow's, the sow's head still remained like an afterimage. The half-shut eyes of that pig were dim with the infinite cynicism of adult life. They assured Simon that everything was a bad business. I know that, Simon discovered. He had suddenly spoken it aloud. He opened his eyes quickly and there was a, a head grinning amusingly in the strange daylight, ignoring the flies, the spilled guts, even ignoring the indignity of being spiked on a stick. So what's happening here is literally there's this pig head that they're all like celebrating and he represents, he's our Christ figure, represents something wrong here, having a pig head on a stick. It's gross, it's disgusting, and it's not gonna lead us in a good place. It's kind of the picture of ego. Simon's head was tilted slightly up. His eyes could not break away from the Lord of the Flies hung in the space before him. What are you doing out here all alone? Aren't you afraid of me? Simon shook. There isn't anyone to help you, only me, and I am the beast. Simon's mouth labored, brought forth audible words. The pig's head is on a stick. Fancy thinking the beast is something you could hunt or kill, said the head. For a moment or two, the forest and all the other dimly appreciated places echoed with the parody of laughter. You knew, didn't you? I'm part of you. Close, close, close. I'm the reason why it's no go, why things are what they are. It's this idea that evil is not out there. It's not the beast. Evil's not out there. It's not the snake. It's not the pig head. It's tying into something in you and I. You knew I'm part of you. 
that ego in us is the problem that ends up causing problems. And that's why Jesus gave us practical tools to deal with ego, whatever form it takes. So this is why Jesus talks about how to overcome ego with a common cause. It gets real practical suggestions here in confronting these people who've called him the Lord of the flies. First, when you have a common vision, a common cause, it replaces your egos filtering out uh, things that aren't true. We only hear things that apply to what we want and we filter out the things we don't want, right? We all do that. But if you have a common vision, it's like, listen, Whatever you're doing or thinking, it's getting in the way of us accomplishing what it means to have a great family, what it means for us. And so it really aligns everyone. And this idea of every house has a common mission, every city has a common mission, is Jesus' point here. Every kingdom, right? we got a common kingdom, we got a common goal here. Every kingdom, divide against itself, is brought to desolation. If we don't work together, if we don't stop dividing, if we don't start fighting, if we don't stop this, we're all gonna be hurt by this. See how it brings people together? Whatever your ego is my ego, the bottom line is if we keep clashing the way we're clashing, you're gonna get hurt and I'm gonna get hurt. Let's get on the same page. Let's have a common kingdom. And every city, this applies to every city, applies to every house. If we don't get on the same page, it's gonna divide us against each other and we're gonna have like Lord of the Flies time. So that's one of the things when you deal with ego is say, listen, you got your preferences, I got my preferences. What are we trying to accomplish? That's our common kingdom. And how can we subordinate ourselves to adapt to what we're trying to accomplish here? So it really helps you say, whether it's my preference or you're not, we've gotta work together or we're going to fall apart. And that's what Jesus was getting at here. A common kingdom helps us deal with ego's ability to filter out the truth. Well, if he would just, if she would just, then we'd be fine. Second thing he says, a daily dwelling in truth can overcome ego's lies. In the same way that beast was talking to them, you realize it's really your voice talking here. I'm just a dead pig head, I don't really talk. Ego has this tendency to lie to us about how important we are, about how vital we are, about how our ideas are always superb. We create a culture in which people don't feel like they can push back or they can disagree. And because of that, the very nature of that is we don't get access to the truth. And the higher we go up the ladder of success, the more people tell us what we want to hear, rather than saying, hey, I don't think your ideas, though good, are actually going to get us where we need to go. So this common kingdom, daily dwelling in truth can be helpful. This is a different occurrence where Jesus is being accused again by some of the leaders of being of the devil or being of Beelzebub. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide literally means to live in, daily dwell in, set up a tent in. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples. You live in the truth. Indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. As ego lies to us about our perspective, what's important, what's not important, how important we are or aren't, Jesus says the truth daily dwelling, realigning yourself to who God is, who the world is, who I am in my proper place. That's how you find success over the voice of that pig who's whispering the things that only you wanna hear. So are you daily delving into the truth? I was talking to my friend Paul several years ago and he uh, went up uh, to the state legislator to talk to one of our state senators. And as he got there to the state senator, he noticed the state senator had a, uh, a Bible sitting on his desk. 
He said, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, are you? He goes, I am, thanks for asking. He says, why do you keep the Bible there? He says, well, every day I've gotta be opening that book, I've gotta be studying that book, and I'll tell you why. My friend Paul said, okay, tell me. He said, all day long, people walk into my office and they talk to me and call me by my title, Senator so-and-so, Senator so-and-so, Senator so-and-so. And all day long, my ego starts to think, I am really, really important. I got a fancy title, people come in for my opinion, uh, I must be the keeper of all knowledge and truth. So every day, I daily dwell in this book. This book reminds me that I am fully loved and fully uh, so important to God, in fact, that he died for me. Yet I'm also a speck of dirt that he breathed life into. And that daily dwelling of truth gives me wisdom to make decisions, but it reminds me who I am so that ego and all these titles that people call me all day long don't trick me or lie to me to think I'm more important than I really am. Daily dwelling in truth. Just by simply having a Bible that you open every day and remind yourself who God is and who you are to keep ego from dividing your family, your marriage, or your company. Daily dwelling in truth. Now, he says the third thing here. You are your father, the devil. So how does Beelzebub, how does that ego attitude, how does that ego voice show up? Well, he says it comes through lies. You're the father, the devil, and the desires of, your de- of the father, uh, you do what he wants you to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He likes to destroy things, right? Divide companies, divide marriages, divide uh, organizations. That's what, that's what evil does. That's what ego does. It divides things. And it does not stand in the truth. It's the, the opposite of truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, what language does, does evil speak? Here it is. When he speaks, a lie. He speaks from his own resources or his own native tongue for he is a liar and the father of it. Which is why we have to take lies very, very seriously. Lies will divide a family. Lies will divide a company. Lies will divide, divide you from God. So when you lie to yourself, when you lie to other people, when you see people lying to themselves to other people, it's always gonna take that kingdom and crush it because it's gonna turn to Lord of the Flies. Everybody's got their own truth. So we address ego with a common vision and we address it with truth. And one of the ways we lie to ourselves is we think we're more important than we really are, right? I thought I'm more important than I really am. So thinking of yourself properly, it's not putting yourself down all the time, but realizing I'm not indispensable. And Jesus hints at this in this next part. There's, a, there's an old poem that I used to listen to. In fact, one of my mentors had this poem. He said uh, he was running the largest organization in Chicago in the entire company. So this thing was just gangbusters, growing, growing, growing. It was the envy of everybody. People showed up, consultants showed up. Man, you're important. Man, I got to hear your truth. Wow, how are you doing it? He said he kept this poem called The Indispensable Man on his, uh, on his desk every day. And he said he read it every single day. It has to do with a bucket full of water. I actually, for 25 years, have kept that same, po- that same poem on my desk as well. It's called The Indispensable Man. A reminder of the truth that God uses you, do great things, but don't believe the lie that you're indispensable. Because temptation will always take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Right? Ego always drives you places you didn't want to go. Stay longer than you wanted to stay and you end up in trouble. And the cause of that is ego, thinking you're indispensable. 
So here's the poem. Sometime when you're feeling important, sometime when your ego's in bloom, sometime when you take it for granted that you're the most qualified in the room, sometime when you feel that you're going would leave an unfillable hole. Just follow these simple instructions and see how they humble your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to your wrist. Pull it out and the hole that's remaining is the measure of how you'll be missed. Not much of a hole there, is there? Simple little poem. It goes on. Here's what it says next. You can splash all you wish when you enter. You can stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find that in no time it looks quite the same as before. The moral of this quaint example is to do the best that you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there's no indispensable man. And there's something about the truth of God, putting ego in its proper place, saying I am important, I'm doing great things, God's using me for great things, but I'm not indispensable. Because when you believe you're indispensable, you get really frustrated that everyone's not appreciating me around here at the office. My wife doesn't see how important I am. You don't say it out loud, but that's the voice of ego. Versus rather, we got a common vision. We're trying to be, form a great marriage. I'm gonna be humble and you're gonna be humble. So for us, how do we deal with both ego and fear? What is the application of this kind of silly book about a bunch of kids who left to their own devices end up kind of warring against each other? Well, I think fear could affect you. Ego could affect you. Fear and ego can affect the people around you. So if a house divided against itself cannot stand, what if we were people of unity? What if you and I choose to pursue unity in just one area you see division? Just one area where things seem kind of out of whack, you say, I'm gonna deal with where my ego might be getting in the way. I'm gonna deal with where my fear might be driving this. I had an opportunity to see this recently. I was talking with a friend who had a big family conflict going on here at the church. And he was pretty ticked off at his adult boys. They were asking him for favors, asking for money occasionally. And every time they came to him and wanted something from him, oh my goodness, you know, they, they, they treated him well until they got what they wanted. But any other time he tried to share his perspective, he tried to share his concerns, and oh my goodness, he felt disrespected, cut off, pushed away, and was really getting angry. There was disunity. Now he knew in some sense he was fearful he was becoming less and less relevant. But I'm not sure he could articulate that as much as he could articulate his ego. I shouldn't deserve to be treated like this and they are taking advantage of me, which is probably true. So he was coming to our uh, equipping service when we were studying verse by verse the book of Jonah back in January. If you're interested in that, by the way, you can see it on the website or the app. And I was talking specifically about dealing with your own ego and how instead of focusing on what other people deserve or don't deserve, Look at how God has given you mercy. Look at how God has forgiven you of everything you've done wrong. It was a pretty convicting message, but it really helped humble us as we realized, man, God's forgiven me of an awful lot. Wow, and it humbled him. And because of that, extend the same kind of humility or mercy to other people. Pursue unity even when the people don't deserve it. He came up to me after the service and he said, Chad, I really felt convicted today that since 
the story of the Bible is that God came from heaven to earth to die for me for my wrongdoing when I didn't deserve it, when he could have built a case against me. If he did that for me, I need to do that for my boys. I need to swallow my pride, deal with my own demons, and go first. That's what he did. He called him that day. He said, I'm going to pursue unity, not because my boys deserve it, not because everything I've said is incorrect, but I'm going to let God humble my ego with truth, with his perspective, and deal with my own demons. How about you? Don't you want the freedom to pursue unity and not let your, uh, your ego be a constant stumbling block or hurdle? God can help you with that. In fact, as you listen to this next song, you may have heard it on the radio. It's by uh, Imagine Dragons. It's called Demons. It's really about dealing with that that Beelzebub in all of us, that Lord of the flies in all of us and saying, God, I need your help. I need some truth to deal with fear and I need a common vision to deal with my ego. Listen to this and then uh, we'll come back. I wanna pray for you.